0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is September 5th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Valerie Schumann of uh, the Midwest Harm Reduction Institute and uh, the Heartland Health Outreach, and I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about that. She's also a co-author on a paper about housing first, about the Housing First Fidelity Index. We're going to ask her a lot about that. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge, a led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our guest, Valerie Schumann, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Valerie?
1: I'm doing well, Ken. Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: Well, thanks for being on the show. Tell me a little bit about the Heartland Health Outreach. Is this related to the Heartland Alliance?
1: It is, indeed. Um, so Heartland Alliance is the sort of parent or umbrella company. Um, and then underneath the umbrella of Heartland Alliance is Heartland Human Care Services Heartland Housing Incorporated, Heartland Health Outreach, and um, recently Heartland Alliance International. So it's it's pretty large, and it's been around since um, 1888.
0: And the Midwest Harm Reduction Institute is that the same as the health the Heartland Health Outreach?
1: It's part of Heartland Health Outreach. Yep. Um, so it was started in about 2004, um, sort of a ragtag group of people um, within and outside of Heartland Health Outreach that uh, that were interested in um, educating people about harm reduction and influencing the systems in at, at, at least at the beginning in um, Chicago um, to adopt harm reduction as a way of um, as a philosophy and a practice in approaching the folks that we work with. Um and it's um, really, everybody was sort of doing that in addition to all of their other daily business and the positions that they were in. and then in two thousand and nine, uh, the Chicago Community Trust provided us with some funding that allowed them to hire me as an associate director, uh, actually at the time as a manager. Um, so I am the only paid staff of um, the Midwest Term Reduction Institute.
0: Oh, okay. Well, being paid. <laughs> paid is good. Paid is always good. Paid,
1: paid is good.
0: Um, so do you have any connection with Chicago Recovery Alliance and Dan Big?
1: A little bit. I mean, certainly familiar with their work and and greatly respect it and refer people to them all the time. Um, They've been instrumental in um, harm reduction interventions in Chicago for a long time and in naloxone distribution and and all of that stuff. Um, Their focus is really on injection drug users and Mm -hmm. um, our focus is mainly on housing, certainly that encompasses all substance users, including injection drug users. Um, But that's where our our expertise is in, is in housing and and mental health and addiction services.
0: So you don't do syringe distribution or naloxone?
1: We do not. We do not. We certainly talk about it. Uh, We do a lot of training um, and technical assistance, uh, case consultations with organizations and helping them along. And so that's something that we we talk about and encourage people um, to make available to their folks or to refer them to the Chicago Recovery Alliance and Dan's program but we don't do it ourselves.
0: Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what you do do and harm reduction housing. And, you know, uh, I think you know that we had Lori Baker on the show uh, a few weeks ago, so she kind of, she actually kind of gave me your name, so that's why you I, asked I
1: wondered you. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lori's wonderful. Um, and, and we work with the Supportive Housing Providers Association, SHIPA, which is Lori's organization, um, quite a bit. Um, So, what the the bulk of what we do, um, the funding from the Chicago Community Trust is specifically to assist permanent supportive housing providers in moving towards housing first and harm reduction. So, um, I've since two thousand nine I've worked with about ten or eleven agencies, um, long term, one year, two year um, projects with them where I do lots of didactic trainings on housing first, on harm reduction, on motivational interviewing, on trauma-informed services, I'm helping them develop some, some knowledge about various drugs rather than just um, what the media has told them, um, on homelessness, on dual diagnosis, all those things. And then I also, um, the large part of what I do with them beyond the didactic trainings is monthly consultations. So they meet with each of their teams for about an hour and a half every month and we, we sort of workshop, we talk through um, cases that they're, they're struggling with, um, sometimes go through their policies and procedures to make sure that they are really coming from a housing first and harm reduction model as well, and that people can see that as they come in the door and throughout, um, and then hopefully um, graduate them, and um, then they, you know, they become involved sort of in a different way. I've started um, what we call a Harm Reduction Champions Group, which is comprised of graduates from those programs. Um, and those folks are um, champions in their organization. So we meet every six weeks. Um, we do readings. We talk about stuff. We develop them as trainers uh, within their organization so that they can keep it alive. Because uh, one of the problems that we've seen uh, with training, especially, with or even with training and technical assistance, is that there's such attrition in our field. There's such turnover in the staff. Um, that if there isn't somebody or multiple somebodies within an organization there to keep it alive, to keep training new people, um, that it sort of atrophies, the practice atrophies.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the, the paper, which I just noticed uh, today when I was doing a little research, uh, looking on your LinkedIn profile to get ready for the show. And I didn't realize this paper was out there. I was just fascinated by this. So the paper is titled, it's the Housing First Model Fidelity Index, Designing and Testing a Tool for Measuring Integrity of Housing Programs that Serve Active Substance Users. Uh, it's clearly a journal article and not a bestseller. So was <laughs> <it's> a title <laughs> like that. But, um, you know, I don't know uh, if you heard about this. I lived in um, the Minneapolis, well, actually the St. Paul Wethouse, the St. Anthony residence um, several years ago, which has been in the New York Times, and Dr. Drew was talking about it, and oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Dr. Drew was talking about it, it as a, a place where people go to die. Oh. Uh, you, you can see him on YouTube, and you know, and uh, you know, I'm also very, uh, cl- I, I'm pretty close friends with Susan Collins, who's doing all the research at the Seattle Wet House, uh, the uh, the East Lake Wet Housing project, which I think is really excellent, uh, I thought – well, I'll get more into this more later. The St. Anthony model, at least when I was there, was definitely somewhat removed from the ideal model for uh, wet housing or uh, housing-first model, uh, but uh, tell me what you found with this paper. Are there, When people implement housing-first, uh, are do, is there a lot of variation? How does this – tell me about it. Tell me about it.
1: So that's, that's exactly um, what we saw. So I, I want to reference um, Dennis Watson, who was the the principal researcher on this paper. Um, and at the time, um, at least initially, when we started working on this, he was um, with Loyola University with their um, Center for Urban Research and Learning. And he had partnered with us on a variety of research um, projects around Housing First. And um, we assisted him uh, with crafting um, what should be in the Fidelity Index, what should be in the questions. So he – I mean, we noticed that there was great diffusion of the Housing First model um, after everybody seeing what a wonderful job it did with Pathways to Housing in New York and with the the programs that you had referenced. And it sort of has become a a buzzword, for lack of a better term. Mm
0: -hmm. So a
1: lot of people want to say, yes, that we're doing this, and and certain continua, ours included – um have have taken this and said well, this is what our continuous should be doing. Everybody should be doing housing first. And um so they've made it something that they they've asked of people and it's something that's scored um, when they submit for their annual funding. And so everybody's saying, yep, yep, we do that. And then when you actually go into these programs and you talk to them or you talk to people who have been through them, um, all it seems to really mean in some of them is that they've they've created access. Right So they allow people in now. they don't require um, either you know engagement in treatment for your mental health issues or sobriety, but then once people are in the door, it hasn't really changed all that much um, that there's still sobriety and abstinence and and punitive measures taken when those things happen and that people aren't staying housed um, so so Dennis um, tapped some people nationally and got a list of. Um, I think about 50 initially. I might be quoting that wrong. <clears throat> organizations that he wanted to interview, um, and we came up with a list of questions. And, and what he found was that there were you know, abstinence-only organizations, housing models, and then there was housing first, um, and then there was housing first with some abstinence-based policies. Um, and so there's, they're all saying, we're housing first. Um, so we wanted to figure out how we can help people understand what the essential elements of Housing First are, um, understand what the barriers might be to employing those essential elements, um, and and ultimately hold hold programs accountable to that, to be able to only say that you're Housing First if you actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but not necessarily in a punitive way. So the other thing about the Fidelity Index is that w- we see it as a tool. So ideally, once it's, you know, refined and developed, we could go in, people could go in and use this, and Fidelity Review Teams. People would get a score, um, much like some other Fidelity Re- Review Index and, and, um, the score isn't, oh, you're not doing good enough. It's like, well, you're, you're here. Let's say it's a scale of one to five, and you're you're at about a three, and where would you like to be? You know, which areas are you most concerned about? And then help people develop strategies to move their organization and policies closer to fidelity, so up to a four or up to a five in those areas.
0: Well, this would make it possible, at least in theory, to do accreditation, and so that there could be accredited, uh, you know, Housing first Project. Is there any move to do the, do something like that?
1: I think there's lots of moves to do that. Um, I, I understand <laughs> that um, that Samson Barris' shop, Pathways to Housing, is is also working on a fidelity scale. Um, mm-hmm. The one the one thing that we know is is pretty different about at least the way that we practice in Chicago is that we aren't funded at the level that they are, and we we can't have act teams, for example, which are incredibly expensive. Um, so I think it's important. That people differentiate between their pure pathways to housing, housing first, and um, and what sort of adaptations people need to make in the context of their funding barriers wherever they are. Um, so here in Chicago, uh, or at least with us, we like to, to talk about harm reduction housing, um, which you know has the access element of housing first, has the rich services of of housing first, but not at the level of. Um, an ACT model, um, but also really focuses on um, on, the, on the harm reduction piece. So that's, that's an element of, of Pathways to housing, housing First, but it's really um, a, a huge focus for us, it's like harm reduction conversations, educating clients, um, residents about what that means. That was another thing that, that Dennis found in one of his other pieces of research was um, that programs that were all true housing first the ones that did better were ones where the consumers really understood what housing first and harm reduction meant and we're having ongoing conversations about that and that's not always the case.
0: Now I just wanted to let our listeners know that uh, a year or so ago we had Sam Simbers on for a guest so you can go back to the archive and look up that show. Um, He is like the developer of the model. He's the, he's the go-to guy and he's done a lot of research and the, he's, you know, the guy that really got the whole ball rolling. So that was a really good show. Uh, you mentioned the, the ACT model. Is that an acronym?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. a sort of community treatment model.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: that, that model includes not only case managers and, and mental health clinicians, um, but a psychiatrist and a nurse, and it's twenty-four hours, and it's on call. Um, so it, it has some some very expensive components, like the nurse and the psychiatrist, um, mm-hmm. and also the the twenty-four-seven on call um, aspect is, is pretty expensive as well. And and that's just at least here in Chicago, um, we don't we don't have the funding for that, so we've we've had to make adaptations.
0: Well, I think uh, in New York City too uh there's going to have to be a lot of adaptations made um i'm not i'm not in depth on everything that's going on in uh, new york city on this but you know we have a huge problem with housing even if you have money and a full-time job that pays you Mm -hmm. money it's really hard to find an apartment in new york city so it's it's really difficult uh for the homeless and, you know, the the ones that actually get into the Housing First program here, that's a, that's a rare, very fortunate few.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, where I work in on my day job at Lower East Side Harm Reduction, we have lots of uh homeless participants that are coming there, you know, and they, you know, hang out in our drop-in space in the daytime so that they can, you know, be out of the weather and things. And, you know, kind of have a place that they can at least call home during the daytime when we're open. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, housing is is difficult here in Chicago as well, and it's only gotten more. So um, my understanding is that um, the rental vacancy in Chicago right now is only at about 2%, um, which means there's a lot of competition for housing. um, And also a lot of um, the SROs, the single room occupancy places, which is what we relied upon for many, many years uh, to house our folks, those are being um, bought up by developers um, who are sort of developing them with the target market of um, college students, young ur- urban professionals, um, and they're not going to be affordable for our folks anymore. So that, that affordable housing is also disappearing.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, the same things have been going on here in New York City for a long time. So it's a very mm-hmm. difficult problem. Um Well, I said I was going to talk a little bit about my time in uh, St. Anthony Residence in St. Paul, which uh, is a wet housing. It's a single site model, as they call it, which means that, you know, we're all together in one uh, building or one unit. It was one building there. And uh, as opposed to the scattered site, which is a very common model, um, you know, where, you know, there's a client that's placed in in a housing unit with you know it, there's one housing first unit perhaps in the building and the others are just regular rentals so yep. so that's a much more commonly found model rather than the uh than the single site model but you know when I was at St Anthony there was a lot of abuses going on um it well it depends on who the staff member was but one of our staff members was quite abusive um he had uh well he had Back in the day, he had worked at a therapeutic community, you know, where they used to dress yeah. people up in dresses and do all this other torture. And uh, I don't know why they ever let him work with human beings again. But somehow he was, uh, well, he was shacking up with one of the board members, so uh, it's like he figured he could get away with anything. I know he said, you know, if someone you know was injured, he said, or having problems, or having severe alcohol withdrawal, he said, you know, we don't have to call an ambulance for this guy because if he dies we can just get another guy off the street. Oh, so, wow. oh yeah, one of my first uh, experiences within the first month I was there, someone died in the bathroom of with alcohol withdrawal because this guy kept saying, I'm not going to call an ambulance, we can't afford it. You know. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, the Other staff members were not um like this, I mean, the majority of staff members, I, I, they were quite decent human beings, and if you had a problem, they would call an ambulance for you. But this guy, and he kind of was like the director was kind of like he was afraid of him and wouldn't say anything to him. So, uh, you know, just a couple people died as a result of this man's negligence while I was there. It was it's very shocking, horrible. I, mean, I yeah, I, I
1: think. One of the problems with not having adequately funded programs and services is that you end up with people like that <laughs> um in a certain sense, you get what you pay for and there are, there are lots of wonderful people doing the work um, but it it can become unsustainable for mm-hmm. people um to to work at a at a poverty at a poverty level um with people who are living in poverty too you know it's it's harm upon harm upon harm, um so I think that's you know a larger systemic issue that I would love to see addressed. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about systemic issues lately, and um you know when to how how to best influence the system when we see the problems, how to make sure that um the folks we are serving have a voice um and that that filters up. Um, and that things aren't crafted just top down, you know.
0: That mm-hmm, that we're really
1: mm-hmm. listening to people. Um, and it's it's a real problem in social services, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the well, other thing that you, Sean, I'm
0: sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, the funny thing was this guy didn't even have to be working there. He had money, uh, you know. He he uh, had rental properties. He was a landlord. He didn't need he didn't necessarily need this income to live on. He wasn't at a poverty level. Wage. I mean, I heard all, he used to tell me all this stuff. So, um, you know, I just didn't understand why the why the uh, executive director of the place wouldn't fire him, except the, the the director was afraid of him because he was shacked up with the board member. So, well
1: connected. Yeah. Yeah,
0: politics. Uh, yeah. and you know, for us residents, there was no place to complain. I mean well I was there in the, in the residence one of uh, the things I did was every Friday I would go out to Access Works the Minneapolis Needle Exchange and volunteer for the day cuz that was one of my things I mean I didn't want to be drunk all the time a lot of our residents didn't want to be drunk all the time and they weren't um so they would find other things to do but when you know I was out doing my volunteer work on Fridays you know the uh the cooking staff would put away food for me and then this uh person uh, we were just talking about would steal it, need it, and I'd come home and nothing there, you know. And I yeah, you know, I tried to complain to uh Hennepin County, you know, the social services about him and he's and they're just like, Oh, you're one of the people in that house. We know what you people are like. We don't believe anything you say. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. and so that that
1: comes to the like the contempt um, yes that, that people that many people hold for drug users and and people with substance use problems, and and that we see that within the staff and within the society around us, and makes it harder for us to do our work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard stories of um, of people who are you know working in these harm reduction housing facilities, and their client, their their member, um, their participant says that you know I, I want to go to Detox. I want to go to treatment. Okay. And you know, they get them linked up. And then they get a call from the treatment center staff yelling at them about sending somebody who's in a harm reduction program to treatment, um, knowing that they're going to be coming back to a harm reduction program and how that's wrong and, and foolish. Well,
0: that's just That's bizarre. Um... <laughs> I mean, it is. I knew I knew people in the house at St. Anthony who were abstinent from drugs and alcohol for years, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't want to leave because that was their home. Yeah. They didn't want to go live with a bunch of strangers.
1: Well, that gets back to what you were saying about single site or, or what I've heard also referred to as project-based model versus scattered site, and um, that is something that I've learned so much about in this new position. So before I, I um, started working for the Midwest Harm Reduction Institute, I was I was at Heartland and I was working in a project-based housing model, um, not terribly unlike um, St. Anthony's, except that um, they can't drink in their rooms. So they can, mm-hmm. they can drink and they can use outside, but um, not within the home. Um, so all I had ever known was project-based, a single site. And, Um, Moving into this position and working outside of our organization with other agencies, I've seen largely scattered sites and started to develop an idea of the the costs and and benefits of each. You know, there's certainly benefits to living in scattered sites um, in terms of independence, in terms of integration into the community, um, in terms of less institutionalization, less feeling like you're living in a program, more feeling like you're living in a home, Um, but also what you're speaking to is that you know something becomes your home, <clears throat> it becomes your community, and then how, since it is such a scarce resource, um, how do we help people move on in a meaningful way so that they make way for somebody else who, who really needs that space mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it is so scarce. Um so I think that's another challenge for our system is um figuring out how to graduate, transition, um, move people on, help them take over their leases, help them become you know more independent, less reliant on the system, less institutionalized, um, meaningfully. There's not a lot of opportunities. We we really struggle with where do people go after this.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now Saint Anthony is interesting. At the time I was there, and I believe this has changed since, but at the time I was there, it was absolutely considered that you were not leaving here. This was considered a place to that you were going to die in, so um, which is bizarre. As I said, the, some of the, a couple of the residents, not a large number, but a couple of people didn't drink at all, um, and uh, about half had a lot of control of their drinking, and about half were very uh, chaotic uh, drinkers. So it was a real mix. But the, the whole idea was that you were never going to leave here, and because of that. Uh, you were not allowed to work and save uh, money for a security deposit to move out. If you work, you were supposed to turn over 100% of your income to pay for your housing. Of course, you were supposed to be incapable of working. Um, So, well, I got in trouble with that when I started working because I was moving out, but (laughs) that's a long story.
1: That's that's, that's a problem, right? That, that, that it sort of becomes this fatalistic approach or that we, We hobble people from actually recovering or punish them um, for recovering and not needing um, the level of service that we're providing. And some of that is, again, a systemic problem where, like, the funding or the, you know, the need to maintain our programs economically, you know, um, creates a situation where we are requiring things of people that they don't want or need. And, you know, it's the same with Social Security, right? It's like almost impossible for people to work their way out of it. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. Um, and they aren't allowed to save, you know, so they could never buy their own home. And it's it's a system that that doesn't – it's not a recovery-oriented system.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, they expected you, if you wanted to work and save money, you were supposed to transfer to their other Program which is the abstinence-based, the Christian Recovery Center, whatever name program it was, which was operated. Mm -hmm. They're all operated by Catholic charities. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, the reason that I wound up in St. Anthony in the first place was, um, you know, I was having problems with drinking too much. I was uh, unemployed, out of money. You know, all that shit that happens. And I said, I want, uh, I need some housing. I want some chemical-free housing because I don't want to drink. I want to abstain for right now. I don't want to have anything to do with the 12 steps because they drive me to drink because it's a violation of my religious beliefs and I, it's a lo- whole load of religious crap that I can't stand. And, you know, the person I was talking to uh, started screaming and yelling and losing their temper and turning red and said, you know, I'm going to put you in St. Anthony as your punishment until you decide to do the steps and convert and uh, all this. So... I was there wow. being, I was there for uh, objecting to religious beliefs in the first place, to having religious beliefs imposed upon me. <laughs> and that was, you know, the only way, the only path they had out.
1: Right. So there wasn't really an in-between step, right? It was either, you know, you go to this place that basically you're supposed to go to die, or you go to a place where if you decide to have a drink, you're going to be put back out on the street.
0: But you see... Abstaining was a hell of a lot less of a problem than the religious aspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I—that's I, because I was actually asking for dry housing. I was asking right. for sober house, chemical-free housing, but no mm-hmm. steps because they're objectionable to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh no, you have to—you have to believe our faith, or you will be punished.
1: Right. <laughs> And that's another thing I've been working on um, with a lot of the organizations that I work with is they, they just weren't even aware of things like smart recovery, of things like moderation management or CAMS, any of those things. People haven't even heard of it, um, largely. So you know, the only thing they know to refer people to is the 12 steps. And certainly they're they're helpful for some people, but just helping people Exposing people to these other models, these other possibilities, encouraging them to provide a menu of options to people and to be a lot more flexible and understanding um, about what it is that people want because people know what they want and what they need.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's the exact assumption, the, the exact assumption of treatment and 12 step programs at least 10 years ago, 12 years ago, now when I was going through all this was people don't know what they want. What they want is wrong. We know what's good for them. We know because we have been through the program and we have been converted to the 12 steps and it is good for everyone. Um, It's a very, at least for many people, it's it's very fanatical and there are no alternatives. I know that there are... I've
1: encountered some of those people.
0: (laughs) I know there are. Um, There are... People that go to AA too that are pretty sane and they realize, you know, I mean, a lot of my colleagues that that, that do needle exchange, they're members of Narcotics Anonymous, and they say, yep. you know, you got to keep people alive first, you know, before you throw any dogma at them. This is what I do to keep people alive. When they want to do 12 steps, they can do that. I, that's not my job here to tell them about that. But you yeah. know, so there are those people too. But there's a there's a lot of extremely dogmatic people. It's it's much like a fundamentalist religion. Yeah,
1: when I when I do trainings, and so before I was doing trainings, you know, my predecessors that were doing them would say, you know, when we we did a harm reduction training in Chicago, people would actually get so upset that they would walk out of the training. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't happen anymore. Although I would say, and it's a smaller percentage, I would say maybe ten to twenty percent of the audience really really give me a hard time, <laughs> really get very upset with me, angry with me, think on the evaluation saying that I was condescending um, or dismissive of, of the 12 steps, and I'm really not trying to be. Um, I, I try and be respectful of, of what has worked for people, and as you well know, um, many people in the field are in recovery themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to respect that and to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but um, I think that people, this is my I'm just surmising. I think people feel really threatened um, by the idea that something else might have been possible for them. And that if they allow themselves to believe that, um, then their recovery is somehow challenged. I mean, I've had people say people listening to you today are now going to relapse because you've told them that they might be able to moderate their use which is not at all what I've said, right? (laughs) Not not what I've said. Uh, I've said some people can, and we need to give people the opportunity to experiment um, and to see if that works for them. And oftentimes that does lead people to pursue abstinence. They say, ah, I can't do that. But now I know I can't do it, right? I tried. Um, But but people are are very threatened. And, And the other thing that one of my mentors said to me is, uh in discussing this is, is mistaking similar for same. And you were you were essentially talking about that. Like I've been through this, right? I was an addict. I was an alcoholic and I the only way I was able to recover is through the twelve steps. And you you look a lot like me,
0: right? Mm-hmm. So
1: it it must be that um you will only be able to recover this way too. And I, I think that's a real fallacy and that people need to understand that everybody's relationships um, with drugs and alcohol is different. Different things are important to me than are to you. And I've experienced different harms than you have. And my path is going to look unique. Um, and and some people get that. More people, more and more people are getting it and understanding mm-hmm. it. Um, but there's always, you know, there's there's always some. There's always about 10 to 20% in the audience that, that really hate me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, the whole thing is... Uh... You know, people, those are the people that try to say that harm reduction is the opposite of abstinence, which is completely yep. false. The opposite yep. of harm reduction is harm increase. Correct. Anything that reduces harm is harm reduction, and that includes successful abstinence.
1: Yep. Yep, that would be harm elimination is what I always tell people.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> At least that particular harm Um yeah, it's that that um fallacy is really um is really still hanging on. And the other thing that people really get upset about is I have this wonderful slide again passed down to me by a mentor of um twelve step or AA quotes and sayings, it's straight out of the big book or straight out of meetings that are very much in line with harm reduction. Um and I I think that the the real um point of that is that because of the autonomy of AA and 12-steps groups, um, people have really been able to interpret and practice it however they want. And the majority of them have gotten, you know, a little bit far away from those things. You know, keep coming back, that's, you know, that's unconditional positive regard, right? You're always welcome. Mm -hmm. Or um, progress, not perfection, that's any positive change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These, these things are very much in line with harm reduction, but I've had people stand up and be like, I don't agree with that. You know, and you know, what can I say to them at that point? You know, I've, I've tried to, to illustrate that these things are really in line. Or, or the fact that in the early um, you know days of AA, they would keep a bottle at home for somebody to make sure that they wouldn't go through withdrawals while they were trying to attend a meeting.
0: hmm mm-hmm.
1: All very much harm reduction.
0: hmm well, you know, the AA officially approved literature is much like any religious literature. It's full of internal contradictions. Mm-hmm. So um, one of my favorites is uh, in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions where uh, it, it, this is all one sentence. It says, um, the 12 Steps are mere suggestions, but any alcoholic who fails to follow the 12 Steps surely signs their own death warrant. So, excuse me, when did a death threat become a suggestion?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, there is not a lot of internal consistency. I think you're right about that. But I guess it's just my effort to try and find some common ground with folks. I mean, I think I started off, you know, really fighting with people and that doesn't really bring people along. Um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the the place where I see people making the the greatest shift, you know, I did this this training um a couple of months ago, um, and I did one called Many Paths to Recovery where I did what I was telling you about earlier. I introduced all these additional resources or or models that people could bring people along with, and I got a lot of pushback. And then my colleague um, followed up by doing a, a discussion about overdose prevention. Well, everybody was on board with that. Everybody can agree we don't want people to die. So that seems to be sort of the the place where everybody, at least I would say the majority, um, can get on board and can agree, oh, yes, we need to do overdose prevention. It would make sense when people are leaving treatment, and this is not commonplace, to have discussions with them about how their risk of overdose has increased because of this period of abstinence, um, their tolerance is down, um, maybe talk to them about getting naloxone and getting their family members naloxone, like putting that in place. As a harm reduction strategy makes sense because we don't—we're tired of people dying.
0: Oh, that's Um, good. That's good. Do you have a lot of uh, treatment centers that are that are doing that?
1: Not that are doing it yet, but um, uh, one of my colleagues. um, So another program within Heartland Health Outreach, um, sort of an allied program of ours, is the Illinois Co-Occurring Center for Excellence. And they um, they're funded through DAS, the Division of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Treatment, and they have um, accepted, um, supported, funded um, one of our our colleagues who's very much expert in naloxone and overdose prevention to to work with these treatment centers. So they're the treatment centers are interested. That people are tired of seeing folks die, and and they're really grabbing onto it. So I think we will start to see it happening. I think um we're at the beginning stages of that.
0: Okay, uh, in New York City, um there has actually been a fair amount of success in introducing overdose prevention into the treatment centers. Uh OASAS, which is our state office has adopted this and they they I I heard all 14 state operated treatment centers in New York City are slated to do this. I I just wrote an article on my psychology today blog about this called addiction treatment. Doesn't have to kill, Mm -hmm. which, um, Oh, you read that. Oh, good. Good. (laughs) So you can see, uh, you know, Sharon Stancliffe has been, you know, the driving force behind Naloxone in New York city for the decade or so now, you know, just chipping away, chipping away. And, you know, it's, it's made its progress. It's like that little drop of water dropping on that rock until there's that there's that hole that goes right through that rock. Um so it is getting implemented and uh if we can do it here, you can do it there.
1: Yeah. And and Maya, Maya Doe Simpkins is um is my colleague who is involved in that. And she's she's um well acquainted with, with Sharon Stancliff and, and all the other folks across the country that are doing that. So I know that she's um you know, talking with them about what they're doing and what has worked and what we ought to be doing here. And and I think it's also the right time, right? Like overdose deaths Mm -hmm. have um, recently eclipsed traffic deaths. And people have been freaking out about pharmaceutical opiates for for a while now. Um, So it's the motivation is there right now. (laughs) So it's now's the time to jump on it and do it.
0: Yeah. Even so, you see a couple of guys get quoted in these articles because there's been a lot of articles. Lately, well, International Overdose Prevention Day was just August 31st, just a few days ago. So yep. we saw a lot of articles in Forbes, New York Times, all over the place. And there's still people saying, well, you can't give them naloxone because that'll give them permission to overdose. Like, I mean, and I said, this is like, you know, when you give epi pens to people who are allergic to bee stings it's not giving them permission to go out and get stung by bees people don't say oh boy now i can go out and get stung by all the bees in the woods because i have this epi pen
1: right or even eat peanuts like let's say your allergy is to peanuts now i'm going to go gorge on peanuts i really don't think that that's what people decide to do once you give them you know it's it's like um there's this wonderful guy um He's out of uh, Australia, and his blog is Stone Tree Harm Reduction. I don't know oh, if you I, follow him at all.
0: I know him. I don't know his name, but I'm connected <laughs> with him all over Facebook. But.
1: Same here. But, he, you know, he has these wonderful images that he puts together to to raise awareness and as a social justice um, issue. And, and he's got one that is around boating and life jackets. It's essentially like, oh, it's like saying, you know, there's too many boating accidents. And so if we remove all of the life jackets from the boats, you know, people are will either vote more carefully or just stop voting altogether.
0: Yeah, exactly. If we take down all the traffic lights, people will have to drive more carefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: It's absurd and illogical, um, and it really is only when morality gets thrown into the mix. I mean, even when we we talk about harm reduction, you know, we talk about seatbelts and we talk about condoms and we talk about folic acid to prevent birth defects to try and you know, get people comfortable, and everybody's nodding their heads and yes, and yes. But once you move into drugs, you know that that moral compass gets triggered, um, and people start to freak out, um, and, and the same logic doesn't apply.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just bizarre. Nobody's going to overdose deliberately. First of all, because of your chances of dying. Second, you can't reverse your own overdose. I mean, that doesn't happen. You have to have somebody with you, and last of all everybody that uses dope knows that Narcan is going to put you into withdrawal and you are going to feel you're going to be sick and it's going to be horrible. So nobody's going to want that experience. Right.
1: Which I mean, so again, this isn't my, my area of expertise, but one of the things I've wondered about is people's willingness to administer naloxone, knowing that their friend um, is going to go into withdrawal. Um, and, you know, I visited um, a couple of years ago. I was on a, an outsider art study trip to Europe, and I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to visit some like, safer injection sites because we don't have those here. Um, so I got linked up to one in Switzerland, um, which was amazing. It was a safer consumption site. They didn't only have rooms for safer injection, but also for safer smoking and a little safer snorting station. Um but the thing that kind of blew my mind is that they had opted not to um, have naloxone or Narcan there. Instead, they just had an AMBU bag, and they would call the ambulance. And they said that the reason that they made that choice was because when people were administered Narcan or naloxone um, and go, went into withdrawal, they often went directly out and used some more, and then they didn't have anybody around to reverse the overdose, and they died.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's uh, something that, that we are very much warned about when we get overdose prevention training. Is that you can't let the person use more because uh, they w- the naloxone wears off very quickly. Uh, the, about thirty the,
1: minutes.
0: I- yeah, and the opiate stays around for a long time. I mean, you can you can reverse the overdose, and even if they don't use more drugs, it's still possible to go back into overdose yep. when the noxone wears off. It's very rare that anybody's taking that big of a jolt, but uh, it, it it is possible, so definitely everyone is encouraged to call 911. We have the Good Samaritan laws in New York City, so you're not going to get busted for calling 911 for an overdose. Um, so, but definitely. We have that
1: here too, but um, one of the things that um Maya has been telling me about and sending me some articles about particularly in the suburbs and um southern illinois is that the um the district attorneys offices there have um started prosecuting people i don't know exactly what the law is, but prosecuting people under this um delivery law, so whoever you know maybe I wouldn't say dealt it, but maybe one of the two people was the runner, right? Like they didn't have mm-hmm. any money. The other person had money and so they went out and they ran and they and they got the dope. Um, they've been prosecuting those people for um manslaughter.
0: Yeah. I mean that's a huge problem when you start moving well, when you start moving out of the city. You know, I know mm-hmm. in New York City it's it's safe enough to do that. Um I don't know what they're gonna I don't know what's going on in long island um I don't know I mean there's still I don't think there's that, that much naloxone distribution going on out there though though there certainly needs to be because they're certainly using a lot of uh diverted prescription opioids yeah. there, and you know when they can't get those anymore then pretty soon they're they're using heroin because it's a lot cheaper
1: mm-hmm.
0: so it's definitely
1: get better high as well.
0: Yep, I haven't tr- I haven't <laughs> tried any of those fun things. I had some morphine in the hospital once after an operation, and that was pretty good. And I said, "Well, you know, I have enough drugs I'm juggling already between my you know my caffeine, my nicotine, my alcohol, my marijuana, which I used to smoke. I quit that uh, many years ago because it gave me depression. But it didn't uh, it didn't used to do that a long time ago. So <laughs> is this enough to juggle with. I'm already, I'm already fully juggling. I don't need something that's going to be, you know, more addictive than any, than the others, or at least more addictive than all of them except my cigarettes were.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the the nicotine, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of caffeine and nicotine myself, um, and those are both pretty powerful drugs. And um, I'd like to imagine sometimes what would happen to me if either of those were made illegal. How <laughs> oh, that might change my life.
0: Well, you know, if we made caffeine illegal tomorrow, Jesus, and if it was a you know a hundred dollars an ounce, mm-hmm. uh, there would be street crimes immediately uh, everywhere. You know, people would people cannot quit drinking coffee cold turkey. You know, well, they certainly think they can, but <laughs> you try that.
1: America would not function very well without legal, accessible, available caffeine.
0: The nicotine, I've, well, the cigarettes, I should say, I I kicked finally. Um, that was a big job. But one of my one of my things, I told myself when I was quitting cigarettes, okay, if you quit, you can have a reward of up to once a week. You can have a cigar because you don't have to inhale that, and that's not going to you know, kill you at that rate of smoking because, you know, the, the studies, which they don't like to talk about a lot, basically said we couldn't find any increase in risk of cancer of people that smoked one cigar a day or less and didn't inhale.
1: Really?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, those were all done at the same time as the cigarette studies. That You know, the that Coop, uh, Dr. Coop, uh, Surgeon General, was all, uh, the cigarettes are killing you, but if you have one cigar a day and don't inhale, they found they couldn't find an increased rate of any cancer, uh, people that were smoking uh, more more than one cigar, they had the risk of oral cancers, and the more cigars you smoked, you know, the greater your risk of oral cancers. Of course, the people that smoked cigars and inhaled were at greater risk than anybody that smoked anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, definitely, and you know, tobacco, the risks connected to tobacco are definitely dose dependent. They found that out in all these studies. Uh, If you smoke 10 cigarettes a day, your chances of getting cancer are far less than those of smoking people, smoking 40 cigarettes a day. So, that's me. (laughs) So you're still still not safe, but if you're inhaling your cigarettes, but your, your odds are reduced. The fewer you can smoke, the greater you reduce your odds. Right. And I've, and I've certainly had that argument with, um, with doctors.
1: I mean, that's, so that's another thing, you know, Heartland is um, very much involved in, in health care. We have a primary care clinic. Uh, it's a federally qualified um, health center, and um, it's a health care for the homeless center. And um, so I think a lot <clears throat> about how they work with our folks who have really complex problems and, um, you know, some risky habits and how I've done some work with them around how they, they talk with people about that. And I often use examples um from my experience with my own doctor. You know, like when I finally decided to reveal to her that I was still smoking, even though it said in my chart that I quit when I did quit, Um I had started again. And her first, the first thing she said was, well, you know, you really got to quit. And I looked at her and said, really? <laughs> do, you, do you think I haven't heard that? Ten thousand times. Do you think that I don't know all the reasons? It's like, well, you know, I have to say that. Said, no, you, you actually don't. You <laughs> could ask me about what what my experience has been with quitting. How many I smoke a day? What I you know what what I am already doing to try and make myself and those around me safer? What my hopes for the future are? Like, there's a lot of different ways that that you could approach it. And what you just did was shut me down, and make me regret telling you. Um, and you know, make it more likely that I'll lie to you
0: next time. <laughs> yeah, if I went to a doctor today, I, the first thing that they would say to me would be about weight. And you know, I can't even lie to them about that. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, I put on sixty pounds when I quit the cigarettes. You know, mm-hmm. I was a he- I was a heavy duty smoker. I rolled my own buglers. I rolled them nice and fat, like a like a camel. And those you know take twice as long to smoke as as a mm-hmm. camel would. So I was at 25 of those a day. That was like a hundred Marlboro's every day.
1: Wow. So oh, hard.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I mean, it's people smoke. I tried filter cigarettes. My God, those are horrible. How could anybody smoke those <laughs> God awful things?
1: Yeah. It's, um, I think you're right about, about weight too, though, that that's um, oftentimes the first thing because it's visible. It's the first thing that, that doctors see. It's the first thing that they comment on, and it's um, blamed for any other problem that you might be having, whether or not it actually is
0: the cause. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: which I think can be really off-putting and shaming, and just awful for people. I read a lovely blog post yesterday about that very subject, about this woman, and saying what thing, what tiny things doctors could do in their offices to make people. Um, more comfortable, like for example, having a larger cuff in the room and not having to like make a big deal about going to hunt down the one cuff that's available for people with bigger arms Um, or weighing people in private instead of in like the waiting room or common area and announcing the weight aloud to everyone. (laughs)
0: I mean, people should be congratulating me because the the extra pounds are a lot less deadly than the, all those cigarettes. Because I was really putting them away. Mhm,
1: mhm. Yeah, that you were, re- and that's that's the thing with with harm reduction or with any change is um, is recognizing that there are both costs and benefits, pros and cons to the choices that you make. So you you made a decision that that the the harms of cigarettes were the greater harm for you. But that doesn't mean that you didn't lose some things or, you know, gain some weight. So lose, lose, lose your slenderness or whatever it was and, and maybe some enjoyment and you know, those various things. But I think we don't do a really good job of acknowledging and talking through that. Um, we always focus on, oh, your life will just be so much better if you make this change. Well, some things about it might not be. You might miss some stuff.
0: Well, I know the worst thing, and I didn't know about this at all, but the, the terrible thing about quitting cigarettes is that you will you will have a disruption of your cognitive functioning for a long period of time, and I actually did one of my, because I quit at the same time that I started my master's in psych. <laughs> and the reason was, of course, because now I have health insurance, I can get Jantix, which was one of many tools that I used to quit. Um, I used about, you know, 12 different strategies simultaneously um, (laughs) to quit. And my friend Stanton Peel remarked, you know, you're the worst experimental subject that ever existed because you are a (laughs) total confound of everything. We
1: couldn't determine which thing helped the most, huh? Well, I
0: think they all helped. I didn't think I would have done it without all of them at the same time. But yep. it's certainly, you can't certainly do uh, control trials that way. Um, but definitely, you know, and then I had all these terrible cognitive things. You know, it was almost impossible to read uh, an entire page of a scientific paper without falling asleep. Oh, wow. So that stimulant
1: effect was really important.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, I did all the research about this because I wrote one of my papers about it for my cognitive psychology class, And you know, what you find is, when people start smoking, um, their cognitive abilities actually increase very short, for a very short period of time. Uh, but when they become regular smokers, then you know, the brain adjusts to the constant dose of nicotine, so it levels off. So you're back to normal as a smoker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you go too long between your cigarettes, you start getting drowsy and dopey feeling and you need one to bring you back to normal again. So it's not that it's making you smarter. Just only at the first, you know, the first few doses, the first couple of days, it's actually giving the cognitive improvement. After that, it's just keeping you normal. And when you stop, you drop below normal. Right.
1: Because your brain adapts to that. Constant external um, administration, which is what people seem to characterize as the brain damage that happens from drug use.
0: Well, there's no, this is the whole brain damage thing is such nonsense. I mean, all these brain stuff. Everything you do with your brain changes your brain. When right. you when you learn calculus, when you're doing calculus, you can take MRIs of people, and their brain is functioning very differently than people that are watching television. And it's totally different from people that are praying or meditating. Actually, Andrew Newberg has done a, a whole book, a whole couple books about that because he's done all this neuroimaging of people that meditate and say mm-hmm. prayers and do special types of praying and how it changes their brain. But nobody says, uh, well, prayer is a brain disease. Look, your brain isn't functioning normally when you pray. All right. <laughs> and it's. All right. it's yeah, and it causes permanent changes in your brain too. If you pray this these meditative prayers uh, over and over again for years of time, you can see total you know huge changes in the brain. Uh, but nobody says, oh, "Look, this permanent brain damage caused by prayer." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, I should also mention uh, we had Andrew Newberg on the show, uh, one of the very early shows here, because I was fascinated by the whole phenomenon. But it's just because something makes your brain change, doesn't make it a disease, and it doesn't make it brain damage. Your brain is your brain is made to change. It's called neuroplasticity.
1: Right. It's something we like. It's something we want. <laughs> it's that our brain can adapt, and that's yeah, that's what allows us to evolve and adapt to our environment.
0: So we've been under the air for a long time. We did, did about an hour now. So you want to? We have. I think that we can kind of bring this to a close. We covered uh, all kinds of uh, different topics under the sun here. So what would you like to leave us with this evening?
1: Well, what I would like to leave you with is um, probably the coolest thing that um, I do as part of my job, um, which is our annual harm reduction housing conference. Um, we're about to have that next Friday. It's called harm reduction in the house. Um, and it's a, it's a one day co- uh, conference and um it's crafted by myself and members of the Home Reaction Roundtable, which is a monthly um, coalition of like 25 organizations um, where Seth comes together from those organizations, and, and we learn from one another, and we network, and we have speakers, and then um, once a year we put on this conference. And so um, those folks craft it, um, put together what they think would be most meaningful, often contribute to session content. Um, And this year, we are going to try recording the sessions and um, uploading them to our website so that people who can't get in because it's sold out three weeks in advance, which is pretty great, um, can see uh, what we're doing and what we're talking about. So um, this year, the theme is it's not just about drugs. Um, So looking at other applications of harm reduction um, and expanding our practice and deepening our practice. So that is next Friday, the 13th. And hopefully... Hopefully, um, the the videography will work out, and we'll upload those to our site, um, which is at the Heartland site. So it's heartlandalliance.org slash MHRI. Um, Then we also have a Facebook page, which is Midwest Harm Reduction Institute. So if people are are curious and interested, they can um, follow us in either of those places.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Valerie Schumann.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ken.
0: And everybody come back next week, and we'll have another show. And thank you, everyone, and good night.